Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we are continuing on our lung cancer series, this time specifically talking about treatment in the early stage non-small cell lung cancer setting. Guys, this is a super important episode. We're finally getting into the, the true meat and potatoes of our treatments for lung cancer. Yeah, I'm really excited about this episode. And it took us a long time to plan on how we were going to do this. And we have something for all levels of learners up to fellows. So stay tuned. This is going to be a really good episode. And please continue to let us know what you think about uh, about this podcast. Hit us up on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram. Send us an email, drop comments on our, on our podcast, and, and let us know how we're doing. All right, guys, let's go ahead and roll the show. So guys, for the purposes of conversation, let's assume that our patient had a 3.8 centimeter lesion and further diagnostic workup, including an EBUS and evaluation of the, of the mediastinal lymph nodes resulted in a diagnosis of adenocarcinoma of that primary lesion. Um, and that evaluation of the lymph nodes did not reveal any evidence of nodal involvement. And all the workup that we've done does not suggest evidence of metastatic disease. How would you approach this patient? Well, you know, you want to start out by just determining what stage uh, we're at in this case. So starting with the T stage, this is a tumor that's greater than three centimeters and less than four, which puts us in T2A territory. And uh, the N stage is particularly easy in this case. It's N0 and also M0. Uh, so it's a... T2A N0 M0 patient. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is really important to understand with lung cancer. Ultimately, when we think of TNM, we think that there are certain stages. We think stage one, stage two, stage three, and there are multiple subcategories in those larger stages. What we want everybody to focus on is the TNM staging and forget about memorizing the, the the actual stage it is and just focus more on what the T stage is, what the N stage is, and what the M stage is, because that's going to tell us how we, how we are going to treat our patients. The first thing I wanted to recap very quickly is when a patient has N1 versus N2 versus N3 lymph nodes before we get into this case and the discussion of, of how to think about this patient. Remember that N1 lymph nodes are more peripheral, intrapulmonary, or hyalur. Those are double-digit lymph nodes, and we think of how we see reports on bronchoscopy. More central lymph nodes, which are higher-risk lymph nodes, are single-digit lymph nodes or mediastinal lymph nodes. And then lastly, we have N3, which is contralateral lymph nodes or a supraclavicular lymph node, and that's incredibly important. So our patient has no lymph nodes, so it's easy. It's N0. The next thing I, th I think of is how are we going to definitively treat a patient with lung cancer? And for lung cancers, without central lymph node involvement, I always think about surgery if it's feasible. And there are certain criteria that tells us if a patient would be eligible for surgery or would be ineligible for surgery. So Dan, what are some of those 
things that tells us if a patient is in the category of eligible versus ineligible for surgery, because that's an important branch point here. We need to figure out some characteristics of the tumor that are going to help us decide whether or not it could be treated surgically. Now, we talked about these tumors that don't involve the central lymph nodes as being sort of your, your entryway into being eligible for surgery. But within that category, there are still some things that could push you out of the able to be operated on category. One of those is tumor size. So if you have a tumor that's really, really large, talking seven centimeters or greater, then that's somebody you really can't realistically operate on in most cases. If somebody's tumor is invading into another structure, like through their chest wall or into their brachial plexus or something like that, typically those are also tumors that you don't want to, that you don't want to operate on as is. There's some special scenarios that we'll talk about in, in trying to do some things to these tumors to make them operable. But by and large, these are the criteria that are going to push you away from being eligible for a surgical procedure. And then, like we'd said up front, if there's mediastinal lymph nodes involved, we're not going to generally be operating on that person. And within that category, I'm also going to say, you know, supraclavicular lymph node. Uh, that's a sort of special category. I think of it as being morally equivalent to a mediastinal lymph node, but it is technically outside of the mediastinum. And that's super important. So to recap, surgery versus no surgery is our first branch point. We think about patients with lung cancer. The tumor can generally should not invade other structures that make surgery a lot harder. And that's a tumor board discussion whether the patient should have surgery or not. But as a general rule of thumb, it's invading other structures. We may need to do some things to shrink the tumor first. We'll talk about that. The next thing is if you have central lymph node involvement, we generally think about definitively treating that with a combination of chemotherapy and radiation, not surgery up front. There are special cases in that scenario. But always, if you have a supraclavicular lymph node or a contralateral lymph node, you cannot go through surgery. That will always be treated with a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. So, Ronick, how would you treat the patient that you presented in our case? So, I think in, in this case, the patient uh, was amenable to surgery. Luckily, his workup was suggestive of someone who would be able to get the surgery. And so, in the absence of any other concerning factors he would be able to undergo a surgical resection. And I think it's also important to define the different types of surgeries that can be done. And we have an episode coming up with a thoracic surgeon to really flesh these topics out, but I want to give everybody a broad overview. You'll hear the term sub-lobar resection versus a lobar resection. So that's one big distinction there, whether you're cutting out an entire lobe of the lung or less than a lobe. And that's one distinction. Within that sub-lobar resection, which you'll hear when, when you're thinking, when you're at these tumor boards and hearing about patients who get resected for lung cancer, you have different types. And basically, the way I think about this is you go from cutting out s smaller pieces of the lung all the way up to cutting out larger pieces of the lung to taking the entire lung out itself. And the way I like to think about this is wedge resection is the smallest resection. Then after that, you have something called a segmentectomy. If you just Google lung segments, you can see what this looks like and just Google different types of resections. But a segmentectomy is cutting out more parts of the lung, a larger chunk of the lung. After that, you have the lobectomy, cutting out an entire lobe. And then you have up to something like a pneumonectomy. And there, there are variations in between these categories, I'm telling you. But I think the big thing to know is that the wedge resection is the smallest resection that we're going to do. And ideally, we want to do at least a segmentectomy in most cases. 
So that's generally the basics of some things about surgery, and that's important to define. So Ronak, what did this patient get? So in this case, the patient ended up getting a segmentectomy, actually. Okay, why don't we take this one step further then? So let's say in this situation, the patient had multiple cardiac risk factors that would make him a super high surgical risk. What would you do, especially in a situation like this where now we know he's got lung cancer, he doesn't have any high-risk features of the cancer itself, he's got no nodal involvement, no metastatic disease, just this localized 3.8 centimeter lesion. Does he have any options at all? In this case, we do have treatment options, and we still think of this person as someone who can be definitively treated, but we're going to need to use radiation. This is a situation where we'll need SBRT or a very intense form of radiation to try and blast the tumor out uh, instead of a surgery. And, and the big thing with that, as we think about radiation for definitively treating lung cancers on its own, you're giving high doses of radiation over a span of three to five days, and that's it. So the patient gets three to five treatments, each treatment's lasting five to 10-ish minutes, and then they're done. And that is very favorable and a good thing to do for many patients, even those with poor lung function. Got it. So it's not like he's completely out of options. This this gentleman may actually have good outcomes if we had said that he's too high of risk of a surgical candidate. That's absolutely right. We can still treat this man with a curative intent. Awesome. Well, like I said, luckily for our gentleman, he did indeed end up getting surgery. Now, as a follow-up to that, I'm seeing him, you know, a few weeks later in, in clinic just to follow up on, on his malignancy. And I'm going through the pathology report, and you all know how pathology reports give me heart palpitations. And this time I, I have discovered something new that makes me extra sweaty and nervous. And that was this thing about the R status or the, the, the margin status or something like that. And, um, I had to Google this, but it's something about like R0, R1, R2. Can we just talk a little bit about that? Sure. So this is a, a way for pathologists to classify whether or not there was any tumor left over after the surgeon was done doing their work. We're always hoping to achieve complete resection of a tumor anytime we try and cut it out. That seems obvious, but it's important to, it's important to remember that. R0 means that there was no microscopic or macroscopic evidence of tumor remaining after the surgeon resected. And R1 would mean there was some microscopic evidence of residual tumor, so basically nothing you could see with the naked eye. But when the pathologist was looking at their microscope, there was uh, spots of tumor sort of too close to the edge. And R2 is when there was basically too much for the t for the surgeon to completely remove. You can see you know, visible chunks of tumor remaining. R0 is what you shoot for. That's good to know because I, I didn't realize that there are two components to the assessment of residual disease, both the microscopic and the macroscopic assessment. Vivek, how does that change anything though? So let's say this, this gentleman did have R1 or R2 disease. What do we do with that information? I suspect that that could suggest that his cancer has a higher risk of coming back, right? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the key thing here is that the surgeons try to get at least a two centimeter margin. And if let's say that we had R1, there's microscopic disease left over. They didn't get that two centimeter margin. We've got microscopic disease left over. In those cases, we will want to re-resect these patients. So whenever you're seeing a report of residual disease, we talk about these at tumor board and oftentimes they will get a repeat resection. And if 
the tumor is large enough or if there's nodal disease involved, we'll do a repeat resection plus other things, whether that's chemotherapy or chemotherapy and radiation. And the technical details on that we're not going to go into, but I think the biggest thing to remember, if there's residual disease left over, you're more likely to get systemic therapy of some form, and the surgeon will try to re-resect if they can. Okay, that's that's awesome to know. And and again, thankfully for our gentleman, he had an R0 resection, um, and so uh, no further interventions were required. And you know, at the beginning of this episode, we talked about how even subtle differences in tumor characteristics can lead to big differences in treatment. So this guy had like a 3.8 centimeter tumor. Uh, what if this was, you know, half a centimeter larger? What if we were dealing with a 4.3 centimeter tumor? Yeah, I think this gets into a really important cutoff to know. So there's there's a lot of things that are are high yield facts to know. One of those is the bucket of surgery or no surgery that we talked about at the beginning. This is another high yield point. When a tumor is greater than four centimeters, even in the node negative setting, those patients are at high risk for relapse and mortality and all of those things. So we consider giving them adjuvant chemotherapy. So even if they had an R zero resection, they got all the tumor cut out. But once you pass that four centimeter cutoff. That's when we as oncologists think we need to give this patient adjuvant chemotherapy because they have a higher risk disease. So if you're going to remember one thing about a patient with node negative disease, and, and we're not talking about the patient who's got invasion of other structures or a very large tumor, things like that, but node negative disease, if you're less than four centimeters, we, we often don't need to give them adjuvant chemotherapy, but if they're greater than four centimeters, then we will give them chemotherapy in many cases because there were some trial data that showed that this was beneficial. Yeah. So even even going from T2A to T2B uh, makes a big difference, even in the N0 setting. And one of the things that made it easy for me to remember what T2A and T2B was, I remember, and this is just for me, I remember that T1 has A, B, and C, and T2 has an A and a B. And I think of that as 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So a, B, C, A, B is one, two, three, four, five. So once I, and once I'm in the up to five centimeter, the four to five centimeter range, I'm at the T2B stage. That's how I remember it. We all find our own ways to remember it, but that's one thing that might be useful for you. Totally agree. Uh, yeah. Less than one, less than two, less than three. That's, that's still how I remember it. So Dan, in, in this case, you mentioned that this gentleman is now at 4.3 centimeters and with this understanding that now he's got what we would classify as high-risk features despite having no evidence of nodal disease or metastatic disease, what would be your approach to this situation? When we say high-risk, what we're talking about, as Vivek alluded to, is, is high-risk for something bad to happen, in this case, recurrence or metastatic spread of this disease. So in that case, in order to mitigate that risk, we have to give some kind of systemic treatment. And so after a patient who is willing to get surgery and would tolerate surgery and their tumor is amenable to surgery, after we send them to surgery, if they have a tumor that's greater than four centimeters, even if their nodes are negative, we're going to recommend following that up with systemic chemotherapy. And in the case of adenocarcinoma and in non-small cell carcinoma in general, that's often a platinum-based chemotherapy. So combination of cisplatin, if they're able to get that. And we'll have a future episode where we talk about eligibility for a drug as intense as cisplatin. 
cisplatin plus another drug, something that you'll occasionally hear called platinum doublet. Got it. So you're giving some sort of systemic chemotherapy. And again, the idea behind giving chemotherapy as a follow-up to the surgical resection is understanding that based on clinical trial data, these patients are high risk for recurrence. You're just trying to eliminate any evidence of microscopic disease. Specifically, you said there has to be a two-drug regimen that's given. One of those drugs is cisplatin. What would be your other drug that you're giving with it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, and I want to mention one thing before I talk about which other drug to use. And that's how did we get to using cisplatin? And why do we say use cisplatin for adjuvant chemotherapy? And any oncology fellow needs to know this trial. It's called the LACE trial. And it was a pooled analysis of over 4,500 patients. And you, everyone should look it up. But bottom line is this. Cisplatin-based adjuvant chemotherapy in lung cancer compared to placebo or nothing, showed a survival advantage of about over 5%. So there's about a 5% difference in survival. So not extremely large, but large enough to where we say that that's worth it if we're getting a 5% benefit out of this. And that's how we got to cisplatin. So it was called the lace pooled analysis. For the second drug that we use, it depends on histology. For adenocarcinoma, we use pemetrexid as that other chemo agent. And we'll talk about more about pemetrexid in a future pharmacology episode. But bottom line with that is you need to give B12 and folate. It's an anti-metabolite chemotherapy that affects synthesis of nucleotides. And that patient needs B12 and folate. They're getting that regimen. And that's used for adenocarcinoma. It didn't work as well for squamous cell carcinoma. For squamous cell carcinoma, on the other hand, you're doing cisplatin plus gemcitabine or Dosataxol, also known as Taxotere. So for adenocarcinoma, cisplatin plus pemetrexid. For squamous cell carcinoma, cisplatin plus gemcitabine. Or cisplatin plus dosataxol, also known as Taxotere. That's awesome to know. And thanks for making that distinction between, between the two. And this is uh, reminds us again why the histology is so important, because it has implications on how we approach our patients. As a practical thing, one of the things that these guys actually taught me when I first started fellowship was this B12 and folate situation. It is always important that if there's even the slightest chance that you're going to give this person pemetrexid, you want to start your folate and B12 at least about a week before you think you're going to give them their first dose. And we continue these, these vitamins throughout the entire course that they're getting their treatment and up to and including up to three weeks after they finish their treatment. So if you want to look like a star fellow or a star resident on a rotation, make sure you question about the utility of adding B12 and folate as soon as possible. And they're vitamins, right? If, if later you, you drop it, it's not going to hurt the patient, but you, there's a lot to gain by, by getting them on that early. And you know, in a prior episode, we discussed Anytime there's nodal involvement, you need to think about systemic therapy. So what we just said about large tumors, tumors four centimeters greater, uh, needing adjuvant systemic therapy, that also applies to N1 tumors that may still be eligible for surgical resection. They're going to require systemic therapy after the fact just to mitigate that risk of systemic recurrence. You're going to want to give a platinum-based chemotherapy to drug regimen unless they have specific markers that may mean they're susceptible to more targeted therapies. Uh, Vivek, could you tell us a little bit about these sort of special scenarios? 
Yeah, I th- and I think this is really important and why the, our previous episode last week was really focused on this specialized molecular testing and PDL1 IHC. And I'll and I'll talk about those two scenarios. So, like I said, that lace meta-analysis showed a little over a 5% difference in survival. So, every you know, in lung cancer, we can do better. So the idea here was we knew that immunotherapy works in lung cancer. So the idea was, well, let's take patients who had a resection, got adjuvant chemotherapy with the stuff that we just talked about. What if we gave them immune therapy after that? Could we increase the cure rate in these patients? And that was a trial that was done. And it's called the Empower 010 for you to look up on your own. But the punchline of that trial was that if you had a PDL1 that was greater than 50%, and we talked about how to calculate that. So over 50% of the tumor cells stained positive for PDL1. Those patients ended up doing better with a year of immune therapy after their adjuvant chemotherapy. So that would be a reason that you could look at the PDL1 expression in patients who had a resection. They did better in terms of disease free survival, but we don't know about their overall survival yet. So that's one caveat with that, but a PDL1 greater than 50% is a special case where you could use immunotherapy after adjuvant chemotherapy. The second special scenario deals with molecular testing, and those are patients who have an EGFR mutation. Particularly, remember we said which mutation they have matters, and it doesn't matter they just have an EGFR mutation. The type of EGFR mutation mattered. And it's patients who had a resection, and they had either an exon 19 deletion or an L858R mutation in EGFR, they could get a targeted oral agent called ocimertinib in the adjuvant setting, and that also showed a pretty significant disease-free survival benefit. The one limitation of that trial that you'll hear everybody talk about, and the trial name is ADORA, is that not all patients got adjuvant chemotherapy, which, again, standard of care that we just talked about is that all patients should be getting this platinum doublet with cisplatin chemotherapy. And in that trial, not every patient got that. So there's some controversy there, and and we're not going to discuss the nuances. But just bottom line is, we know that's an option. And it's a targeted option. And it had a pretty drastic improvement in disease-free survival with, you know, we're talking 90%, over 90% of patients who got that targeted agent had no disease and were alive at two years. Whereas in the other group, it was about 50%. So a very drastic difference. So, you know, that that's an important thing to know. But again, look up those trials on your own. We just wanted to mention them here so that you have them for your reference. So guys, I don't know about you, but my head is spinning after that discussion. But I think we walked away with some super high yield, really important information about how we approach lung cancers. And I think I just need a little bit of time to to go back and digest it. Uh, I I totally agree. I think the big takeaways here are, if you can, we want to treat these patients with surgery. And people who can get surgery, in addition to all the standard criteria for being able to get surgery, like can they survive the procedure? Do they want the procedure? Uh, In lung cancer, that means, is the tumor small enough? and sort of not involving any neighboring structures? And are the lymph nodes involved close enough to the primary tumor that they could reasonably be resected with it? And the other major takeaway is patients are going to need systemic therapy if there's lymph nodes involved or if the tumor is big enough, four centimeters or greater, that we're worried that there might be microscopic spread elsewhere. So that systemic therapy is there to mitigate that risk of recurrence. And the big thing with that is that 
always give cisplatin-based chemotherapy based on the LACE-pooled meta-analysis when we're thinking about that systemic therapy. And there are special scenarios where you could consider after adjuvant chemotherapy with these cisplatin doublets to give immunotherapy and potentially in some patients to give a targeted therapy like osimertinib, which is one of the targeted therapies for EGFR. The thing that I found most helpful, to be completely honest with you all, is to eliminate thinking about lung cancer as those overall stages, and instead just think about it as a composition of the TNM status. Because as we saw, even changing just a little bit of size or characteristics of the same clinical scenario essentially had major implications on how we approach this patient. And so, you know, it is, um, it almost seems wrong to just assume that every stage one or stage two is the exact same. Um, I think that this, this definitely highlights the importance of, um, of keeping the bigger picture in mind. And I think that's huge. And like I said, the way that I remember it is T1 has ABC, T2 has A and B, one, two, three, four, five. And that's how I remember it. And that T2B, which is between four and five centimeters or greater than four centimeters is when you're going to give chemotherapy. And that just so happens to equal stage two. And again, going back to that lace meta-analysis, I say it a lot because I want everyone to look at it who's in oncology because it's very, very important. The patients in the stage two to stage three lung cancers, generally these patients who are have tumors greater than four centimeters are the people who benefited the most in that meta-analysis. And that's why that cutoff is so important. The other thing I just wanted to mention as a, you know, as we end this episode, in the next episodes that we're going to release, we want to first discuss what radiation is and the toxicities of radiation before we get into talking about things like concurrent chemoradiation and induction regimens to make those patients who had the invasions of other structures that we said weren't surgery up front. They often use some form of radiation. So we want to go through those principles before talking about the nuances of discussions of people with central lymph node involvement or larger tumors or tumors that are invading other structures. Yeah, listeners, you're in for a great episode. We have a guest with us, Dr. Evan Osmondson, coming up uh, on those radiation oncology episodes. And he is just a wealth of knowledge. And um, I agree, Vivek. I think it's going to be helpful as we frame kind of the next phase of our treatment modalities, just because so much of it is also integrative of, of radiation oncology. Yeah, oncology really is a, it's a team effort. It's a collaboration between surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, pathologists, a huge, huge range of people that, uh, that all come together to make these choices. All right, guys. Well, then I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. So until next time, we'll see you later. See you later. Peace.